0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with your host, Andrew Taylor. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Sanford Shapiro. Sanford is a learning disability specialist, specifically with dyslexia and autism spectrum disorder. He has a long history, working in education, and was an educational director for the CDU schools for a time and has uh, some history in Australia, which he'll talk about in in the interview. Um, He also authored a book called A Light Within, which is a kid's story about anxiety, and that is available on Amazon and is a pretty cool book, so check it out. I met uh, Sanford about five years ago, right before I opened my program. We had a dinner on a cold wintry night in Bend, Oregon, and I was really impressed with the guy. He's, he's down to earth. He's incredibly smart and brilliant and has a ton of experience. And uh, what impressed me most that night was how many people came up to our table and showed a lot of just respect and gratitude and appreciation for the man that he is. And that always stood out to me. He's also a man after my own heart. He picked up and moved to Ecuador uh, not too long ago. So he's living down in Latin America and enjoying time down there with his wife. And he'll talk about that as well in the interview. I learned a ton about learning disabilities and how to approach them. And he definitely knows his stuff and what he's talking about. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. And as always, uh, come back next time. Sanford, welcome to In the Trenches. How you doing today?
1: Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: I uh I'm usually on the south or central American end of these calls and uh you know being in Utah I have great internet and so do you so um usually I'm the one apologizing for audio or trucks driving in the background or birds chirping but uh <laughs> but today I it sounds like we're both we're both uh have a pretty good connection here so um I, I kind of wanted to start out by just asking you how you became a kind of a known specialist with learning disabilities and autism spectrum disorder what what got you to that place
1: a known specialist <laughs> well uh probably cuz i talk a lot and, <laughs> uh, and you know uh not a, i guess you know i care a lot about um about the whole subject matter and uh you know i'm in it personally and professionally and I've been doing it long enough that, uh, you know, I've I've had, I guess, a good combination of making enough mistakes and learning from them, and, but also being mentored um, and trained really well and have been in, you know, the front lines in terms of being a teacher. And then uh, also I've experienced the kind of crossover between learning disabilities and behavioral and mental health issues from a personal standpoint It's in my family um, and, you know, have have been in positions of leadership where um, you really had to, you know, put up or shut up, and I've been lucky.
0: What's the biggest mistake we make when it comes to helping people with learning disabilities, whether it's in the schools or, or within families or personally, you know, it sounds like something called you to this it's kind of a mission for you. Where are we getting it wrong, and where do you usually find yourself stepping in and saying, "Hey, everybody involved, we got to rethink this"?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I'll start with with just a, a taste of, of my background because it's it fits right into the question of you know how and what. Uh, when I actually my first job out of out of uh, undergrad school. I was uh, a teacher at a residential treatment center in Melbourne, Australia, and it was for pretty significantly behaviorally disturbed young teenagers. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Yeah, I was fresh out of school, had a degree. Um, I suppose I knew a little bit, but it was pretty much Ordeal by Fire. And, um, you know, most of the kids in the treatment center had learning disabilities, but they were there for, you know, behavioral problems and dysregulation. And, um, you know, you really had, I had to really develop whole sections of my relationship skills with, with teenagers like that. Um, And, you know, I was lucky because I was around some seasoned veterans but what I think we got good at, you know, Andrew, was um, was building kind of trust between them and, you know, eventually making school a less stressful place. But we weren't really delivering challenging uh, academics. You know, when I look back on it, we were probably babysitting in some ways. We were keeping the stress levels down. We were, you know, pushing them to a certain extent but it was, it felt like particularly me as an, as a newbie, it felt like, um, you know, we were treading water in some ways. And, and I left that experience after a couple of years thinking, well, I I don't want to work with this clientele anymore. I want to get back to the field of just pure learning disabilities and dyslexia, which was the bulk of my training prior to that. So I, uh, I started taking positions um, in that realm, and and fortunately, when I moved out to Cal- uh, California in Carmel, I, I met a man who was starting a school for dyslexics, and you know that was some of the best training I ever had. Uh, apprenticed with this guy who was a master uh, for you know a good year, and got really educated and really good at delivering you know, evidence-based, science-based, cream of the crop instruction um, from a from a learning point of view for these kids with learning differences. And so now I had two kind of experiences. And what I began to see over time was that the schools that were primarily for kids with learning disabilities or learning differences had kind of this attitude, which was If we remediate the dyslexia or whatever the learning difference is, if we teach kids how to read and spell, you know, well, then their self-esteem problems will go away. And flipping that, because I then eventually spent time working in therapeutic schools where historically the attitude was kind of the other side of the coin, which was, yeah, we've heard about learning disabilities and we, we won't say they don't exist, but really our mission is to do family systems work and that if we help kids or teenagers discover their underlying trauma or family issues, self-esteem problems, and if we unburden them of those, then the learning disabilities will kind of take care of themselves. And there were seeds of truth in both, but for um, for whatever you know reason that touched me, I've been on a mission to kind of bridge those two gaps, because of course, as it turns out, um, you know both both are true, and you've got to if you're working with kids with learning disabilities or learning differences, you've got to become a relationship expert and deliver you know the best possible practices in psychology and counseling but you also have to really understand how the underlying cognitive differences impact all sorts of things so i'll I'll add you know one more piece because i think (laughs) if i remember you you know asked you know what are we missing and um Things have improved tremendously over the period of time that I've been involved in, in this work. But still, the main focus seems to be on helping, on, uh, on understanding that kids with school struggles, um, and, and most of them have learning differences, that the biggest impact is going to be on their self-esteem, and one of the things that we, that's really missing is sort of wrestling with um, looking under that hood, like what leads to the self-esteem problems. And one of the biggest things we find out is that um, kids with learning differences, when you go through school struggles for, for quite a number of years, they just believe, they, they lose their belief in their self-efficacy, which is the, that they believe that their efforts don't matter. So that's, that's, that's kind of number one, is really digging into self-efficacy as it's different than self-esteem. Uh, another big one I just wanna put out there is um, has to do with the kids on the autism spectrum. Because over the years I've been shocked, surprised, and you know, ha- uh, <laughs> feel happy that there's been a a tremendous explosion and an increase in the number of therapeutic schools um, and wilderness treatment programs that, that market and purport to specialize uh, in kids on the spectrum. And like most anything, as much as things have improved, there tends to be a gap between what people say they deliver and, you know, what they're delivering and that, usually doesn't have anything to do with that they're not trying. It's just about catching up to, you know, the science or, you know, what the wisdom is out there. And one of the things, if you talk to, you know, I mean, you know the players that are involved. If you talk to folks who are involved in therapeutic education, you ask them to describe people on the autism spectrum. One of the important things that you hear, which is true, is that Kids on the spectrum, they misread or just miss social cues about other people. And so there's a lot of determination to try to, you know, help with that. But one of the things, a a while ago, I was working, when I was first getting started, I was working with a young man. We were doing some kind of academic therapy, and he was on the spectrum. And he would come regularly, and then all of a sudden – He stopped coming, and it turned out that he wound up in a psych hospital. And what had happened was, like many, he nosedived. He went from looking okay to um, really being in extreme need from a mental health point of view. And what we began to learn, and this is the part that's kind of misunderstood or not recognized enough, is that not only did they miss... Uh, read or miss the social cues of other people they miss their own they're disconnected to their feelings they're disconnected to their bodies and so from a neurological and psychological point of view they miss all sorts of cues about themselves and their own stress levels that bring about you know an increase in self-harm depression anxiety and you know unfortunately suicide
0: so many questions off of just your first few thoughts. <clears throat> do you see a difference between young people that have been diagnosed versus those who haven't? And is that part of the struggle in your process in working with these young people? Is it far better to be diagnosed? Um, you know, do you see the ones that aren't diagnosed struggle more? And, you know, walk us through kind of that process.
1: Yeah, that's another great question. And it's I've been in, um, you know, I've been to plenty of dinner parties, as I'm sure you have different kinds of um, conversations with people who, you know, feel quite strongly that there's an overdiagnosis, or that diagnosis has become crutches, and other sort of negative connotations to the whole diagnostic thing. You know, for me, while I get that, there's overdiagnosis and there's misdiagnosis. Having learned how to do certain kinds of evaluations myself, I, I, I still heavily come down on the side of uh, diagnosis, clarity of what's going on is really an important thing because, or else, you're kind of shooting in the dark. So, you know, for me, the question becomes. Can you get a good eva- can you get a great evaluation? And then how do you tease apart, uh, particularly in therapeutic education, how do you tease apart all that what is sometimes goggly gobbledygook? How do you tease that apart to make a meaningful impact on therapy and, and and teaching? Yeah.
0: What's the first thing you would say to a young person, teenager or young adult that's struggled you know their their self-esteem their self-efficacy is low they've been struggling in school relationships and everything they know they're diagnosed they're struggling with the fact that they're asd you know autism spectrum disorder or dyslexic or you know that they have learning disabilities right when you want to like right at the time of life you want to be normal and you're trying to figure out who you are and how you fit in the Mm -hmm. world and i think I'm going to, you know, you know better than I do, but I think that's where a lot of that stress and anxiety and depression comes from. What are some of the first things you would say to that young person that's like angry or mm-hmm. sad or scared or they think it's game over? You know how, tra- you know, tragic mm-hmm. everything feels at that age. You know, you, you just think, oh, it's, you know, my life's, it's, you know, my life's a wreck. What are some right. of the things you tell those young people in that moment?
1: You know, another great question. Um, I first would step back from my overwhelming impulse, which is significant because it's shared by most people or many people in the helping professions. I would step back from my impulse to fix and help and give advice. Um, Because by that point, whether they've been diagnosed or not, they've heard so much. And, um, as you well know, you know, there's so much resistance to advice and trying to tell them even great things and well-meaning things. So the first thing that I try to do is to ask them a whole bunch of questions and to really, you know, to, to use what I've learned from, from, from the experts in the counseling and psychology world, which is to build a rapport so that I can really use that principle of having them be understood before I try to be understood. So I start with really asking questions about where they struggle or how do they feel and, and, you know, whether it's with a dyslexic you know, person or someone on the spectrum is to, you know, try to dig in and, and spend time with them uh, about their perspective, you know, and, and then I look for an invitation. I ask for an invitation to, you know, once I know more of the territory, you know, then I'm not being general and I can get specific and, um, you know, we'll ask for an invitation of of something. I'll say something like, would you know after they've given me their download is would you like to hear my perspective so that's that's number one and number two number three is and this is the critical part two is to normalize the variability in the human experience and that's a whole bunch of complicated words but i i there's a guy you've probably heard of uh, tony atwood he's a australian uh, expert in the field of autism and, um, and I read something in a book of his that I, I totally have used in my practice that's gone really well, particularly with you know, people on the autism spectrum. But you know, what he outlined was picturing like a family in, the, in a clinic office, let's say, and put up a bunch of big sheets on, on the wall and you go around the room and you don't start with the young man. I mean, this is like a family session in a way that, and this could be right after diagnosis. And you kind of go around the room and you, you start with dad or mom or brother, and you, you sort of start listing what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. And you ask the teenager that you're That you've brought up, Andrew. You ask them for input. What you know? So, what does your dad do well? What does he not do well? Oh, you know, he's really kind of messy with materials, but he's super organized when he has to speak or um, things of that nature. You build a strengths and weaknesses chart in a way, Um, and so you begin to normalize and create some safety around the idea that everybody's got a learning profile with strengths and weaknesses, and then. That creates some safety where you can start to then go through the diagnostic data that will help lead a discussion of what's the teenager's, you know, apparent strengths and weaknesses. And then you, so now you have everybody. And eventually you can get to a point where you can say to somebody, this type of strength and weakness profile, like really good at at learning specific details but a corresponding struggle is to get the big picture and then you could start to say things like scientists have a have a term that they use for this type of profile they call it asperger syndrome so you've now built up kind of a a picture of everybody's got a learning profile and some are more unique than others
0: that's uh, wow. I imagine that's pretty, uh, pretty powerful and you know heavy. You know, mm-hmm. as a family to walk through that process. Um, you know, what what are some of once you start to connect on the psychological well being of these young people what's the next step, or you know, maybe we'd get in the weeds too much, I'm sure it's different for, for each one, but mm-hmm. I know you really specialize in dyslexia and, and autism spectrum disorder. From an educational standpoint, what are some of your goals with people with those types of learning disabilities?
1: You know, I'm going I'm to stay in some of the generality areas because I'm going to be most useful, but... So so you're starting, you you lead with strengths, you know, when you you go, so this first section is, you know, I got to retreat back to going, building a person's understanding of their own profile is for me the starting, the best starting point. If you can do that really well. You know, so with a dyslexic person, for example, as you're building that profile of really good receptive vocabulary, they understand lots of words. But when it comes to parsing out individual differences of sounds, phonological processing, so you begin to break down all these complicated, norm, you normalize the terms and you build this profile. and And hopefully you've got someone where you can, layout that they really have many more strengths than they do weaknesses so you you, you've now created this relationship where you can then start to um you can then start to help them set some goals or you can help you can lead them in a discussion of well if i'm really good at general ideas uh, but my working memory is in the crapper that then it makes sense, let's, does it make sense, you kind of can pose questions, does it make sense to set some goals to work on that? You know, rather than, so you've now, you've now not only normalized things, but you've, you can help, set, help them set goals that don't sound like they have to do with character defects, because that's the way most people with learning disabilities feel, or have been made to feel is that they got personality and character defects. So when you're working on, working memory, it's different than, than mom saying, "I'm so frustrated because he can never remember to be responsible." It's not about being responsible. It's about working on working memory, right? Or, or with a dyslexic, you know, kid is working on how to decode words so that they know what to do when they get an unfamiliar word or more likely in a therapeutic setting is, is, is learning how to not only advocate for themselves but to you know figure out what tools and, adapt and adaptive devices they need.
0: So what percentage of time will you spend on the disability or you know, the weakness in this case and what percentage of time will you spend on the strength and what you do well and finding solutions to navigate the the weaknesses?
1: Yeah, you get great great questions. You know, it's different in different settings. You know, me, when I'm, you know, when I had, uh, you know, a day clinic for kids with learning differences, the the day to day time we would spend was very specific to building up core academic learning strengths because you know kids at in school age the primary thing that makes them feel good is success in school so if you you know if you don't have someone on your team who can really help them read write understand better from a skill point of view it's very difficult to do anything else. But if all you did was that, or if all the team did was that, you'd be missing, you know, the key component of most human beings that we know, which is that they want to spend time developing strengths. So, you know, assuming that you have a good team around you, you know, there's got to be you know, a good, a good, at least half of the time that you're with someone is helping them work on strengths. You know, I, I, one of, in a way, one of my mentors or somebody that I learned from, you know, quite a bit at one point in my life was an adult dyslexic who um, was a technology whiz and who became a really good writer. And, um, you know, and he developed his strengths in technology and art but he started when he was at the uh, University of Oregon. He told me that his Volkswagen Beetle broke down, and it was. But he had some good inherent mechanical skills and hands-on visual motor skills, and um, you know that's why he's good at photography and technology. Anyways, um, he, when his when his Volkswagen broke down, you know that's when he got out his. Uh, idiot's guide to repairing rebuilding a volkswagen engine and plotted through so you know that was a really good example for me of someone using strengths to really tackle weaknesses so it's 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 a fine line i um you know a, as someone who who has the ability to uh, to work to improve those kinds of skills that's what i focus on but i'm always working in a backdrop of you know in a I'll use the word in an energetic way and in a very grounded way always giving them people I'm working with a sense of I see your strengths I respect your strengths I expose my own weaknesses to you that's that's a really big one um, and then when I'm when I'm trying to guide parents, if parents ask me questions, uh, because many parents in many places get fixated on remediating the weaknesses, not surprisingly, um, you know, again, is, is sort of guide guiding back to don't forget, let your kid go hunting, fishing, play with electronics, build things, use art, whatever they seem to be drawn to, Give them opportunities to do that because if all they're doing is remediation you 're going to crush their spirit
0: and I think it's true of all of us honestly if if I could change anything about myself even through my twenties, it would be you know stop trying to be something you 're not and focus mm. on all the things you 're not good at and you know, focus on what you are good at, and that's yeah that was a path for me, and I think for a lot of us and so i'm a I'm a huge advocate of that, and it makes a lot of sense with learning disabilities and especially in that setting. are the traditional schools and is the traditional education system getting better at identifying and supporting young people with learning disabilities, and what changes have you seen over the last twenty years? Well, you kind of talked about your initial start in your mm-hmm. career, but have we come a long way? Do we have a, lo- a lot more to go, or are we getting to a more competent place?
1: I think we have a lot more to go. The public schools um, and the way that teachers are trained leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to kids with learning differences and that's why I think in fact um, you know I spent a lot of time in and around working for and advising all the therapeutic schools, wilderness programs, etc. And I personally feel like, I'll say you guys, because you're part of that world too, but that the, in some ways, the therapeutic schools have, you know, a tremendous opportunity to be game changers and life changes, life changers, life changers um, but there's a long way to go. You know, I'll give you a quick example is um, a story of um, I was out looking at a wilderness program and sitting around the campfire like like consultants often do. And you're going around the circle of listening to kids' stories and doing a little intro circle. And there was this, you know, one 16 ish year old boy who was about a foot taller than I was and had this kind of rangy, rangy strength in a way about him that um, that you felt like if, if this kid went off, you know, you'd, you'd be in danger. But he, um, and he was there for, I think, some of those kinds of issues. But underneath it was some pretty low self esteem and. Uh, sense of himself. But anyways, um, when he heard a bit of my story that I that I was all about dyslexia and learning differences and bridging the gap between mental health and 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 learning capacities, um, he kind of looked a little bit impacted. And afterwards, he came up to me and. And with tears in his eyes, he told me a little bit of a story. And, and what he shared with me, Andrew, was this, that um, in spite of all of the experientials that so many good wilderness programs and therapeutic schools and RTCs use, in spite of the, the, the uptick you know, in using experientials and art, et cetera, one of the main tools is journaling, particularly out in wilderness and that's what he was describing to me. What he said to me was, when my field guides or therapists ask me to do two pages on this or that subject, they don't understand, you know, what two pages is for me. I'll kind of leave it a little bit like, like, like that. And, and he said, um, so when I go to them with three quarters of a page, they think I'm withholding or you know not being direct enough with my issues and they make me go back and redo it and they just don't really get it and and then further and and he further he said you know there was some some sort of feeling that if he didn't do a good enough job that that was going to somehow impact a parent visit now you know that's just sort of one instance but when you have A reading disability, often what goes along with it is a real difficulty in writing. And so there's a whole realm of growth that could probably occur in therapeutic programs around alternate means of accessing feelings without going through the language channel, particularly the written language channel. Does that make sense?
0: Totally yeah i'm 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 sitting here thinking of you know all the times where I could have done a better job <laughs> working with a young person in our program, and that's why I love these interviews because i I learned so much yeah you know uh,
1: and,
0: yeah and so so yeah definitely yeah,
1: what I appreciate that you yeah know, I tell you I tell you just you know um along the personal lines is you know I was just saying this um, last night to my wife because, um, because it's, it's true. I don't blame myself as a step parent to a young adult who has major mental health and addiction problems. I don't blame myself. We did a, you know, we did the best we could. Um, and the end result is still not good. But one thing I do regret is as he started to show his colors of struggle, and sort of resistance. One of the few things that he really put time into. Was skateboarding. But me. The big expert. I missed. <laughs> you know I missed. the, I'll say the proper way to really respond. Because all I could see was. All of the negative stuff. That I associated with the crowd of skateboarding. And. And, and it, it was ridiculous because I grew up in the schoolyards of Brooklyn, New York, playing sports all the time. So I, out of everybody, I should have been out there with him, you know, falling on my butt, trying to skateboard and, <laughs> and, and applauding him, you know. So at least he would have had that. At least we would have had that. But I couldn't see it in its proper context.
0: Thanks for sharing that, man. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ugh. Oh. Well, I, I can only imagine the mistakes I'm going to make as a father. And, you know, I, I appreciated what you said, though, how, you know, you're you're kind of at peace with the outcome of, of your child, you know, that's struggling. Mm-hmm. Because I it's something that, you know, I, I believe it was Bill and I, Bill Lane and I talked about. And I, something that's been a theme that's just been coming at me in the last few months is this constant message of these parents, you know, there is parenting that has to do with the struggling young person, but it's really it's re- we, we really overdo the message on the parenting's the problem the parenting's the problem you know in some mm. some cases it is but i I really appreciate your vulnerability on that um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in terms of diagnosis and and the science behind learning disabilities, do we have a sense for? Where this is coming from, is it increasing? Are we seeing more young people with it? There's always that like, oh, we just know how to diagnose better. We didn't know that back then. But what I'm seeing with depression and anxiety and and some of these other things is, no, there's a significant increase as well as autism spectrum disorder. Do you have Mm -hmm. a sense for why, where, and how on that?
1: I have a sense, you know, throughout the country when I talk to, you know, my friends and colleagues, People are starting to acknowledge. Maybe they've been acknowledging it for a little while. That yeah, kids seem to be more and more complicated. Um, you know, when 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 we first started something that was called the Thomas Allen School, which has become something called the Chartwell School, which is one of the best day schools in the country for kids with dyslexia. Mostly what we saw were sort of bread and butter dyslexics, pretty well adjusted, bright kids, good families who just struggled to decode and spell. And, you know, those days seem to be mostly gone, you know, instead of nine out of 10 of the kids that we would see who were that you know, now maybe it's two out of 10 and, and, and the rest of what we see are much more complicated, um, you know, with memory issues, with self-regulation issues, with anxiety. Um, and, and so it does seem to be that it's getting more complicated. And, you know, what I would say is that there's lessons for everybody. And as much as we think we know, we've got to sit back and go, well, as sure as I am of this, I have to have a part of me that has to be open to not knowing exactly what's going on. I'll give you an example is, you know, I've been asked plenty of times, what's with the increase in autism? And, and I've given the answer that people with my background tend to give, which is that there are better diagnostic tools. And so correspondingly, there's been a decrease in what, you know, Classic autism, for example, you know, which which you don't see a lot, but you know, you see more of the high-end Asperger kids. But the classic autism looks a lot like what we used to say a mental retardation or developmentally disabled. You know, so so I, I I've given that answer, um, and I believe it, and yet, uh, you know, there has to be a part of me that says. I don't really know but there does seem to be more and more and one thing I would venture as 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 a possibility of the why why there's more and more diagnostics is because people are seem to be as a society I guess I'm get big picture here but you know parents and what and there's there's just much more stress in, in our environments than, than there was and different kinds of stresses, and so students and parents' responses to the difficulties that their kids have, you know may be a lot less resilient you know and and you know you have biology and you have you know nurturance, and so once you define a problem, but then what you do with it is is kind of the biggest piece. I don't know, if, you know, how clear my 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 theory is, or you know, my point is, is that you have, you know, the possibility that there are environmental factors that are leading to increases in certain certain diagnostics, you know, whether it's pollutants and things in cleaning, and you know, there's been a um, interesting f- part of research that talks about the the. The way that kids are reaching puberty, and and biologically speaking, they're reaching puberty at earlier and earlier at earlier ages, which complicates things all the more. And there does seem to be some evidence that there's sort of environmental things, but you know, we also have. I will say on the on the good note, um, on the positive note, is I've noticed a tremendous increase in the in the activation or in the involvement of fathers and dads and men in the rearing and the child rearing of their kids. It seems to be quite a change from, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s. I mean, I I, I even I've been doing a series of Facebook ads. um, And I bring that up only because I was looking at the, the demographics of who's responding. And in the in the age groups of 20s, 30s, and 40s, it's really close to an even split of men and women are looking at what I'm presenting, whereas in my age group, in the 50s and 60s, it's predominantly women. So there does seem to be more involvement by men, which I think is going to only be good.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about ADHD for a minute? Sure. I, um, this, is, this is one that I think there's a lot of opinion around. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate around medications, and especially for young boys. You know, um, it's so easy to say, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, these young boys, they're bouncing around the classroom, and we're, we're going to give them medication to calm them down, you know, we got to channel that energy to more positive things i say i'm guilty of it i'm i i do believe that but um <clears throat> are we overdiagnosing adhd what are the what are the positives you know the strengths and weaknesses of this diagnosis and you know how can we help them and channel that energy to more positive things that's that it just seems like it's a real hot button dyslexia is yeah. kind of seems to be a lot more cut and dry autism spectrum Mm -hmm. more cut and dry but ADHD you know there are times where honestly we're looking around as a team going man this guy's on a lot of meds he's ADHD you know and of course we don't we're not going to pretend that in a week or two or even a month or two we're going to wrap our heads around it but it's a hot button for me and it's something I want to understand better what are your thoughts
1: yeah um a lot of learning going on by me and everybody else and you know those are all i think the right questions and you know i think that's that's part of the way we're going to sort of emerge out of a into a better understanding is really being okay with wrestling with these questions and you know and even for folks like me who think they know what they're they know what's going on or they think they know what they're talking about is to be open to new, not only new science, but new experiences. Um, you know, my background always leaned heavily towards the reality um, of ADHD being real and that in fact it's underdiagnosed. Um, you know, and, and and there's some pretty good evidence that it's in fact underdiagnosed you know, a lot of people I know would look at me now and raise their eyebrows and say, underdiagnosed, it's overdiagnosed. And, you know, both are kind of true, because there are probably many kids in particular, who, because they move a lot, and it's uncomfortable to the adults in their world, whether they're teachers or clinicians or why not, that that they're that they are misdiagnosed as having an attention deficit problem, rather than they may be dancers. They may you know they they may they may need to we may need to recognize that a fundamental problem we have in schools, in particular, is that kids are sitting too much. You know, in fact, that may be the cause of lots of problems that we're not getting kids out into the wilderness enough to learn experientially the idea of sitting in desks is kind of absurd just um working with a boy now we're recommended to the parents that they get him um, one of those standing desks you know where he can you can raise the level of the desks and and whatnot um, because that's an environmental change that helps him to, to keep his attention. But so we have probably, you know, for sure, people getting diagnosed when the problem is the environment and schools that are too dependent upon sitting. On the other hand, most people who get older who seek treatment for ADHD or ADD They do so because their lives are getting messed up enough that they go, you know, they self-refer, you know, now we're talking about young adults and that doesn't tend to happen. So there's probably a lot of people who are undiagnosed. Um, You know, we now understand that for most people, ADHD is not a problem with attention. It's a problem with executive functions, which have something to do with attention, but that's not all there is. So we've got to sort of broaden it. When it comes to medication, you know, and this is where I've had to learn to be more flexible, is it used to be a no-brainer to me. Um, You know, Ritalin and, and amphetamines like that used to be the primary directive you know and and focus for you know for kids with problems like this and it was you know according to the literature that we would read it's the most safe and the most studied medication that there is you know aside from maybe aspirin Um, and it has good results so it would be malpractice not to that said now we understand there's no evidence that there's any long-term benefits. So if that's true, I mean, so there may be reasons to use various medications um, for certain parts of symptoms of executive function weaknesses, you know, reasons to use medications, but it can't be the only thing we do to address the problems. And B, it can't be seen as the long-term solution because there's really no evidence that, it ha- that doesn't mean that there isn't, but there's, no, there's, no, there's been no evidence that it shows long term benefits. And in fact, I remember uh, going to a workshop uh, a few years ago at a conference, one of our conferences. And, you know, there is evidence that there's a rebound effect, that if certain medications are used for too long, that it can encourage the very behaviors you're trying to eliminate. You know, it's, so you've got to really attack it. You know, it's various ways.
0: I have a handful of friends that are ADHD. They're they're wildly successful. Mm-hmm. And one in particular, he he started a few businesses and he had a business and he he didn't he went off and on a meds. You know, he'd go off and he'd go on for a while and um, he got on meds and <clears throat> after a couple months his his assistant came in and she said, Hey, I talked to your business partner. Uh, we both need you to get off of your ADHD meds. <laughs> and he said, why? And he, she's like, I can handle your schedule. I can keep you organized, <laughs> but we need your creativity and it is gone. And, you know, we need you to be you and what you're best at. And he, you know, he's told me that story a few times and I, mm-hmm. um, you know, and again, he recognizes the need for it at times, but he's really, he's really found his stride in terms of being able to set himself up for success with others supporting him and him being able to do what he does best. And and so I think I, I I do believe meds are important just, just like you said. Um, And I, I try not to impose my bias onto the world, but there's, you know, and I am I am biased because I'm a wilderness guy, right? I believe the outdoors and right. nature are right. going to be some of the best medicines we're now discovering and, and we're going to see more of this in the future, but, you know, that it's the answer to our problems, <laughs> to all of our problems, right? But um, anyway, yeah, so I yeah. I, I tend to I be, hear you. you know, and that's why I like, you know, doing these interviews and, and hearing from people that are, you know, experts in this. And so I if you could build you know, along these lines, if you could build the perfect ideal public school, you know, what would, what would it look like?
1: Does it have to be public?
0: (laughs) Well, let's, let's say the sky's the limit, right? Let's say there, there's no limitations, but you know, that we could mass, you know, on a mass level, create a totally new educational system. Um, you know ideal world stuff let's be dreamers for a minute what What would that school look like for you
1: yeah i I don't even know how, how to even begin i'll start you know by kidding but but maybe it gets to some truth is you know i would I would hire you I would hire bill Lane <laughs> um, I would have lots of people with plumbing skills and electrical skills and carpenters and people who um who could model and teach how to produce stuff and build stuff so that, you know, great readers and writers like, well, I'm not saying I'm a great writer, but great readers like me, you know, that, that we would also learn practical skills. Um, you know, that would be a part when, when I first went to work for SIDU, um, which is one of the grandfathers of the therapeutic world you know, the place was, was filled with those types of people. And we probably, now they probably asked those guys and women to do too much. It doesn't always make sense to have a plumber be the counselor, but there was a reality that, um, you know, that that getting those type of folks in the educational environment, you know, was really important. You know, another piece that you know, certainly, is sorely missing. You know, would be to have much more of outdoor education. Um, you know, as a school I know in uh, in Bend, Oregon, you know, has as I think their tagline, you know, uh, education without walls. You know, which which hints at doing ecology and all sorts of things outdoors. Um, you know, the the another piece that I would you know have is it's kind of very hard to describe balance between a lot of rigor, you know, a, a lot of challenge within an, a culture that, if not celebrates mistakes, at least you know really has it out there that 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 experimentation and making mistakes and failures is really cool because it helps to lead to solutions. You know, those are some of the, those are some of the pieces, you know, a last thing I would add um, since I'm apparently a, a learning disability specialist is to have universal design as a, as the general instructional approach, which just means that just like you can design door handles to work for people with physical disabilities so they don't have to turn knobs they just have to push on it that that works for everybody's that 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 we build schools that that have that universal design so that so that you know things that are thought of as accommodations you know, like, like, like word prediction software on word processors and computers is just de rigueur. It's what anybody could get, you know, so that there's no such thing as assistive technology anymore. It's just technology tools.
0: Cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. We got nothing else to do, right? We, (laughs) yeah. That, thank you for that. Um, you wrote a children's book called A Light Within. So what, in, what inspired you to write that? And, you know, can you – I didn't have enough time to order it um, before ah. the interview, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. And it's Thanks. got a lot of great reviews on Amazon, I can tell you that.
1: Yeah. There are, you know, most of the time I've worked with kids has been with older elementary and middle school and high school and college students and young adults – um so less, much less frequency do I work with really little kids. But a couple of years ago, I was working with a group of like five and six, six year old, really bright, very dyslexic kids. And one of them, one of the boys um, I discovered later, was really struggling with anxiety. And he would miss every like third day of class and, you know, I f- wondered, should I feel responsible? Was he avoiding me? And I learned that that wasn't the case. he and sometimes he would get there and and he'd be putting up a fuss with his mom, and she was all distraught because of the wear and tear, and we'd get him into class, and then he would you know slowly write himself because the class was good and you know safe for him. But it only worked in the short run, all these things that I tried. So I decided, let me try to write a story, a kid's story, that would maybe teach through that so I wasn't directing things at him. And so I wrote this story, a light like, Within, that's about a turtle and a bear that have their own social anxieties. And they work their way through it and discover their source of strength within them and outside of them in nature and other relationships and um so I wrote it and it worked you know well for the group and I kind of liked it I didn't think I could necessarily write so simply for kids but turned out I thought pretty well and so I reached out to a, one of my first and most precious former students who's a gifted artist but when I first met him was him like one of the characters in the story and but a gifted cartoonist and he's now my illustrator he's like 40 now and um a great young man who's developed his strengths and so collaborating with him coupled with the reason why i wrote it has been you know really a lot of fun for me and feels really like appropriate for my stage of my career and it's like you say it's 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 gone well enough in terms of how people are responding to it that I realized, oh, this is something I want to keep doing. So we're collaborating on a series, and the next one is a light within dyslexia, which is going to show a lot about strengths and core gifts within people who have dyslexia. Um, and then we'll move on into a light within autism and a light within ADHD. So it's a, it's a, um, I, have never written books before, let alone kids' stories. And, um, lastly, I would say that it's occurred to me, um, and, and this is a pitch, but it really, you know, truthfully, it occurred to me that even there, sometimes there are little kids stories or children's stories that can be kind of instructive for teenagers or for even adults. And if, if I'm lucky enough to to find that voice, and you know that's what I hope. And one time I read this story as I was creating it to a group of teenage girls out in the wilderness, and a few of them came up to me afterward and said, "Ah, oh, that really speaks to my anxiety." So I'm hopeful that it has a broader audience in the even adolescent therapeutic world than than just for little kids. I.
0: I- I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you never thought you'd be an author of children's books, maybe even five, ten years ago.
1: No, it wasn't on my – which is probably a good thing because like at least in this case, I wasn't trying to write a book. I was trying to help a kid.
0: I love that. You know, uh, I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan. I listen to his podcast all the time. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, which
1: is uh, – no. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I've heard the book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, and, uh, I read his book 10 years ago. He's about my age and he's, he's kind of been an inspiration to me in many ways, even this podcast, you know, it, it kind of inspired me to get this going, but oh, great! his first book, he said he, his first two runs at it, the first one was super intellectual and it was awful. And the second run <laughs> at it was like really cheeky and he tried to be hilarious and funny. He said it was awful. And then he sat down and wrote it he started writing an email to two of his close friends that were struggling. Mm-hmm. And that's how he wrote the book. And great. Um, anyway, I, I have aspirations to write something someday. And nice. uh, and so anyway, that, that kind of inspired me and it resonates with what you just said. You know, you didn't set out great. to write and sell this great book. You just set out to help one young man. And anyway, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm
0: I'm excited for what that, what that ends up being. And, uh, it's, it's inspiring for me. So thanks for doing that.
1: Cool. Thanks.
0: Um, so I got, I got to say, as we kind of wrap up, I, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but about five years ago when I was just starting my program, we hadn't even launched yet. I was kind of going around meeting people in the, in the field or industry, whatever you want to call it. And, we had, a, we had a really fun dinner in Bend, Oregon on a cold, mm-hmm. snowy, freezing night. And, you know, you really inspired me in a lot of ways. But what really stood out to me was as we ate dinner, there must have been 10 people that walked by in this little restaurant and, Sanford, how you doing? What's going on? And it was very clear that you had had a powerful influence on that community and that you were very well respected and just had a lot of warm, loving relationships. And I was... I w- I've been meaning to ask you this. Um, we haven't run into each other since you made the move, but I was shocked to hear that you were moving to Ecuador. And right. I thought, golly, he's got this like, amazing community. and he's, you know, But at the same time, I was excited because that's me, right? Like I, I moved to Costa Rica. Uh-huh. And, and so what, what inspired it? What are you learning? What are you, mm. you, you know, in, in Latin America, they have this term that's called, the, they don't call it a midlife crisis. They call it a second youth. And I think that's Ah. how you described it to me in an email was like, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. pursuing my second youth. So tell me, tell me all about Ecuador, man, and what you're learning and, and everything. Thanks.
1: Yeah. If you, if we were doing video, you'd see me, you know, my face is lighting up. I'm smiling. Um, you know, I've had a great career. Um, I'm still working, but I, um, began to ask that question of how do I want the next, my wife and I began asking the question of what do we want the next stage of our life to look like? And, um, you know, in that we've had a history of acting on those kinds of questions. And so we've certainly moved around the country more than some. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I've always had that itch of how can it be different? How can it be better? at the same time stayed in um stayed in the same field of education and consulting you know which i'm still in but we asked that question and that led us to visit we'd heard about this city up in the andes mountains cuenca ecuador and we visited and fell in love with it and you know so then it was well now what and i you know all i all i can say is um it for me came down to you know what i what we all tell kids i think is you know who's who's running your show you know with a with a appropriate degree of humility and can't control everything you know are are you a passenger in your own life or are you trying to you know live your dream and live your passion so we moved here we've been here now 11 months and it's the greatest thing I could have ever done. And I'm still figuring out what the semi-retirement mean for me. And so far it means that I'm continuing to work with kids, but from a distance. Um, I'm continuing to do faculty trainings and, um, you know, for, for schools and programs. And, and, but now I have the time to write and, you know, the, the older I get, the more that the term service seems to have Personal meaning, and you know, just as an example, this little book, "A Light Within," I met someone who's from a real writing background in Ecuador, and and anyways, he's and my Spanish teachers helped me um, translate it into Spanish, and the goal is to donate copies of the book because it's about trauma and stress to children of poor communities here in ecuador so I, I feel like i'm you know as much as any time in my life you know living the dream and and uh <laughs> and and uh i couldn't i couldn't be uh, i i can't contain that kind of enthusiasm um you know not that there aren't challenges i'm, I'm learning a second language as as you've you know probably done and learning a second language has deepened my appreciation for what dyslexic kids go through because when they're learning English, it's kind of like a second language to them. And here I am struggling how to decode words in Spanish.
0: Yeah. I love that you're doing it. It's yeah. it's taught Megan and I so much. And, you know, Latin America has been a really unintended, you know, imp- but a very important part of my life. And mm-hmm. uh, there's just you know it's it's a little more uncomfortable sometimes things don't run as smooth, right. but i we we feel you know we feel really connected and and sort of like we're there's a rawness to the lifestyle, you know, even in the city, wherever you are that and and as Americans, we're so programmed for everything to run efficiently when things don't run smooth mm-hmm. <laughs> that's been uh I think that's been my greatest lesson, and you know now. Yeah, I get frustrated some days, but it takes a lot more to rattle me now than, than, than it used right. to.
1: And well, let me ask you this, Andrew. You know, especially today where lots of people are struggling with the shooting in Florida and what the heck is happening to our children and how are we not protecting them. You know, the, I don't know how it is in Costa Rica, but here in Ecuador, the 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 joy and the emphasis on family is – really high you know you see families touching and walking together all the time in, in a way that i haven't seen in in more developed nations and and then there is that thing about you watch a a latin culture teach us about doing more with less is that something that you experience
0: absolutely my you know Absolutely. In so many ways, you know, the, I mean, we, we value individualism in the States, right. And in, in, in Latin America, it's ingrained in their culture through many years, this, this idea that we take, we, the the family, we take care of the family and, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to both. I see benefits to both, um, cultures Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when we're sometimes talking to families that are looking at coming to our program and they'll say, Hey, is it safe? Which is right. It's a very fair question. I would ask the same, Mm um, you know, and, and we, we start thinking about all these shootings and things like that. I, you know, it's, it's an easy answer. Yeah, it is. It's, it's not perfect, but, but it definitely is. And so I, I think my, my wife and I have been very influenced to keep life simple wherever we go. And you know um, that you know I, I've been down there 15 years. Not the whole time, but I went to Costa Rica 15 <laughs> years ago, the wow. first time. And I spent six months, and then I moved back, and then I spent another eight months a few years later, and then I moved back. And I lots of trips back and forth, running expeditions. And I always thought, you know, wow, it you know it really has influenced me and inspired me in all these ways. But after living there five years straight. I can say that that I'm I'm very changed and definitely mm-hmm. you know one of the things I notice most is how much I don't how much crap I don't need. And I like nice things, right. you know. I like right. I like right. a nice you know like yeah. I, it's not that I don't um, but you know, the amount of clothing in the five years from when I made the final move down, the amount of clothing that I've gotten out of my life, of course, in <laughs> down there, you don't need a lot of clothing, but just, just kind of, it's been a purge in a lot of ways of a lot of junk that I didn't need and had even accumulated in at 35 years old.
1: And, and, and does your program, sorry to interrupt, does your program have a Cultural immersion or connection piece to your students?
0: Definitely. We do. Yeah, that's a thought. Yeah, we so, do.
1: So, why wouldn't that be a great thing? Because if it's a great thing for adults to be immersed, you know, to not only learn from your peer culture, which is a big part of wilderness and therapeutic, but to, to kind of relax into this other culture that just gives kids perspective.
0: Hugely. It's really yep. powerful. And you get, you know, it's interesting because I think as Americans, North Americans, um, when I say Americans in Costa Rica, they say, we're Americans right. too. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> so I've learned to uh, be more PC with the uh, North Americans. Um, sure. We, um, God, I lost my thought. Oh, we tend to think that like, okay, you know, when you go to a foreign country, you see people that are really poor and then you should feel really grateful. Like that's kind of you know, how we think of it. And it's Right. And and so the question I'll ask our clients when they've had these homestay experiences, I'm i I'll say, mm-hmm. you know, were the families poor? And they all say unanimously, no, no, they weren't poor at all. It's like, right. okay. Did they have a lot of stuff? No, they didn't they didn't have a lot of stuff, but the house was clean, you know, it was beautiful, the you know, and these are self-sustaining families that live deep in the jungle and you know, have made a decision that they want to live off grid, and and they'll say, but mostly they're just really happy people. And mm-hmm. anyway, it, it's a it's a really fun aspect, and obviously it's it's what inspired me to open a program in Costa Rica, right? And and it's been fun to see our clients through the years connect those dots and and take those lessons home with them, and say, hey, if if Santiago, one of our guides, can pack a. Mm-hmm a refrigerator on his back up to his home 7 miles in the jungle I think. Right. I think I can get up on time and get to class. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. Well, from what I hear you're doing a great job.
0: Hey, thanks. I I really appreciate that. And uh my my last question before we wrap up is, you know, for someone at my stage in in my career, what advice would you give me just on working with young people and their families? What's something you wish you'd known at 40? And uh, that would help me along my way.
1: Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't know what stage of career you're at, necessarily. So I can only answer what I wish, you know, I knew at 40. And I would say that as, as much as I thought of myself and even in some circles might have been known as a quote-unquote sensitive educator, um, you know what I—I I, I was busy. I was too busy trying to be an expert, and not enough time remembering that part of the pathway to becoming a real expert is to really, 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 really spend time listening to my clients or my families or my kids and listening in a way that, that like I was, I mean, I was listening, but, but what I've learned since then is there's a way of listening. That's, that's only purpose is to listen, not to prove a point or figure something out, but just to really ask questions of other people's experiences. So I've learned, you know, and I wish I did more of it, I guess, uh, you know, then I suppose is to, um, is to listen in a different way.
0: Good advice. That's yeah. uh timely advice for sure.
1: Yeah. Then, Great. then, then, you know, from a professional point of view, just, you know, two sentences is, is continue to, uh, listen to your inner guidance, you know, that, that directs your career and, um, and don't try to do stuff, you know, like I tell kids and like, you you know, it's not about fitting in. It's about becoming more of who you are. That's your gift.
0: Thank you. It's good advice, Sanford. I, I appreciate it. Um, thanks for taking, and I do remember
1: our dinner by the way.
0: (laughs) Good. Uh, I'm glad it was, uh, it was one I'll always remember for sure.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And good to hang with you. Um,
0: Thanks. I appreciate having you, and and, uh, I learned a ton. So I appreciate you taking the time.
1: All right. Take care, my friend.
0: Take care. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a few housekeeping items. If you enjoy the podcast, if you're listening consistently, um, or if this is your first time, I would love any comments and or feedback on iTunes. Uh, Subscribe, rate it. Comment on it. Give me your thoughts. What do you want more of? What are you enjoying? What would you like to see more of? Uh, Those types of things. Anything to help me be better and bring more of what you guys are interested in listening to. Thanks a lot for joining. Have a good day.